0: Scripture reading this morning is from Luke 12, verse 13 to 23. That is on page 1617 in your pew Bible. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes.
1: So if you were to look up the word fool in a modern dictionary, you might find a definition such as this, a silly or a stupid person who lacks sense or judgment, or a professional jester, one who's kept for entertainment but not to be taken seriously, or finally a person who has been tricked or deceived into appearing or acting silly or stupid. A fool is a person who who spits into the wind and is surprised when it comes back to him. He's the one that cuts off the tree branch on which he is sitting and he can't imagine how it is that he fell. And he's the one who swims against the current and wonders why he isn't getting anywhere. The word fool is not at all complimentary. And I can't think of a context where calling someone a fool would not be considered an insult. And so when we open our Bibles and we read the section heading that comes before verse 13, we immediately know that not to follow the example of the man in Jesus' parable. The parable of the rich fool is a story about a man who makes a really unwise decision and who by the end of the story faces the consequences for his foolish actions. And yet I can't help but notice that there seems to be just a little bit Of practical wisdom in what the farmer in Jesus' story does. We're quick to to condemn the the rich farmer because Jesus calls him a fool, but what would we do if we found ourselves in his shoes? At the beginning of the wheat harvest, our crops have produced much more than we might have expected. Our barns and our bins are are soon full, and we haven't even begun the harvest of the barley, canola, or soybeans. One option would be to harvest as much as we can fit and then to leave the rest in the fields to rot and to go to waste. Or, like this farmer, we can build newer and bigger and better barns with room to store everything so that nothing goes to waste. To be honest, the new barns would seem to be the more prudent decision, a better use of what we've been provided. And at least in this way, The farmer seems to be less the fool than what the text makes him out to be. So where then does he go wrong? Now he definitely does go wrong and we'll look at that in a few minutes. But to best understand the farmer's mistake, I want to spend some time looking at the context and who else Jesus might be addressing. If we're to flip back a few pages to Luke chapter 11, Jesus begins by teaching his disciples about prayer. And in the end, he, casts, he casts, ends up casting out a demon. The crowd that was there that gave witness to this casting out of the demon was amazed, but there were some there that accused him of casting out demons in the name of the devil. Jesus continues to teach. And the crowds that follow him continue to, to steadily increase. And when he's finally done teaching, he goes into the house of a Pharisee to recline at the table there with him and to enjoy a meal together with that Pharisee and with his friends. It turns out that even in this meal that he's not done teaching. And he uses the ceremonial washing of hands when they come in the door. they, They dip their fingers in the water. They rub them together and dry them off and they go to their seats. He uses this to call to attention the Pharisee's preoccupation with his appearance and with looking the part of a righteous man while showing little love for God and no generosity for the poor. As you can imagine, that that during this meal, Jesus' message is not well received. And so he exits the meal with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who begin to oppose him fiercely. And as they do, the crowds continue to gather, and a crowd of the thousands... Surrounds Jesus because they want to hear more. Now it's interesting that at this very point at, uh, in the beginning of the of beginning of Luke 12, Jesus turns his attention away from this large crowd, away from the Pharisees, and he begins to teach his own disciples. He warns them to be aware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he tells them to fear God rather than to fear men. As they do, Jesus assures the disciples that the Holy Spirit will empower them and will teach them how to respond to any opposition that they face. Presumably, much of that opposition that they will face will come from that group of Pharisees that Jesus just left. And then, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the midst of the the crowd, someone pushes through the crowd. They push forward and they interrupt Jesus' teaching and they say, and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now the teachers of the law did at times intervene in financial and inheritance matters such as this. But this man that interrupts should have known that Jesus was not a teacher of the law. They were part of the group with the Pharisees that were over there off to the side, grumbling about how Jesus treated them in the house of the Pharisee. And they were this group that was now looking for ways to oppose and to trap him. But this man recognizes Jesus' authority. And so he goes straight up to Jesus rather than to this group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. And rather than asking for a just judgment, he assumes that he is in the right, that Jesus is on his decide. And so he demands judgment in his favor. Now I have to tell you that Jesus' response makes, makes me a little bit laugh to myself. Jesus says, Man, who appointed you, who appointed me a judge and an arbiter between you? In a way, Jesus is saying two things with this response. The first thing he says to them is, that's not my job. You want someone to judge on financial matters? Go over there to the teachers of the law. That's their job. They will help you. But behind Jesus' words, it's almost as if he's saying, really, that's what you're asking me to do? Have you been paying attention to my words at all? All this time, Jesus had been teaching on what it means to be righteous in the eyes of God. And he uses the teachers or the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as his counterpoint, as an example of what not to do. And all this man can come up with is Jesus, help me get what I think I deserve. The rich farmer in the parable, may be a fool. But Jesus is telling this man who asks him to, to divide the inheritance that he too is foolish. Not only does Jesus not have the legal authority to intervene, this is nowhere near the point of Jesus' ministry. He came to bring men to God, not property to men. His parables were most often about the kingdom of God and storing up riches in heaven, not the kingdom of man and storing up riches for yourself. In asking Jesus to intervene in this financial matter, the man completely misses the point of who Jesus is. This man is the fool. And as we read through Luke 12, it doesn't tell us whether or not this this man stormed off in anger, or if he went to the teachers of the law, or if he remained to hear Jesus could continue to teach. But what we do read is that Jesus turns his attention back to his disciples. He warns them to be on their guard against all kinds of greed, that life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Jesus uses this man's request as his teaching point, not for this man, but to continue to teach his disciples. And this is when he begins to tell the story of the parable of the rich fool. Now, I've said that we would get to what the rich fool does wrong, and we will. But first, let me tell you what he doesn't do wrong. Luke is a gospel writer that's known for Speaking against the wealth of the Pharisees and of others who might use their riches as a point of influence. He reco- recounts Jesus' teaching of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, and how Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side when he dies, while the unnamed rich man goes to Hades to be tormented. Luke also includes Jesus' conversations with a rich young ruler as he tells him to sell everything so that he can inherit the kingdom of God. And what Jesus says next in Luke's gospel is shocking for anyone who has money. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If you're sitting here thinking, sitting here this morning thinking I'm glad I'm not rich I pity the poor fool who is then I need to point out to you that by global standards that each one of us here this morning is quite wealthy the median household income globally is $9,733 per household that's less than $10,000 per family And when we think about the top 1%, we usually think it sounds like a a pretty exclusive club. But in order to be the top 100% of wage earners in this world, you have to make slightly more than $32,000 per year. And so by these standards, each one of us here is incredibly well off. So it's a good thing that the, the rich fool's mistake was not simply that he was rich. There's much more to where he went wrong than being rich. And in fact, Jesus' parable says nothing against this man's being wealthy. Consider this. Jesus tells his listeners that the ground of a certain rich man had an abundant harvest. In pointing to the ground rather than the work of this man as the source of his abundance, Jesus is saying that the wealth did not come from this man himself. This abundance could even be considered a sign of blessing from God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, Solomon, they all experienced material blessing from God. They were all considered very wealthy by earthly standards, and yet none of them were called a fool. You see, what made this rich farmer a fool was not the abundance of his harvest, Or even the decision to tear down his barns and to build new. What made him foolish was the fact that he gave no consideration to God or to his neighbor when he was making his decisions. He's completely alone in his decision making, and he talks to no one about what he's about to do. Luke emphasizes this fact in the narrative by having the farmer talk to himself. Now, if you don't know this about Luke, when people in his gospel talk to themselves, they're not portrayed as being very wise. You might say that it's wisdom to talk to God and foolishness to talk to yourself. The dictionary's definition of a fool is a silly or a stupid person who lacks sense or judgment. But Scripture offers us a different definition. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now atheism, the ideology that denies the existence of God, is not something that came about until much later. The psalmist is not calling a fool the one who would deny the existence of God. He's calling out those who would act as if God has no bearing on their lives. The rich fool was not was foolish not because he was rich but because he was not rich toward God. The man asking Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him was foolish because he completely ignored Jesus' teachings on what it meant to be righteous in the eyes of God and instead he tried to use Jesus to make himself rich. In Luke chapter 11 as Jesus ate with the Pharisee, and as he instructed him in regard to the ceremonial washing before the meal, and as he compares the Pharisee to a cup that has been washed only on the outside and left dirty on the inside, Jesus says this, But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. To be rich, Toward God is to be generous to the poor. The rich fool tears down his barns. He builds new, he stores up his grain, and he tells himself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He assumed his future was taken care of, and he thought his life was in his own hands. He ignored the very God who not only gave him the abundance of grain, but also who held his very life in his hands. This was the mistake. And this is what made this man foolish. So how then do we not follow the example of the rich fool? What can we do differently so that we are storing up riches in heaven as Jesus commands? Now, there are many answers to this question, and sometimes I have a hard time picking just one. And often my fear in giving you an application in a sermon message is that I don't want to give you a checklist of things that you do and not do in response to this message that you can check off, done, 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 okay, I've done what the pastor said for this week, and let's carry on with life. Because our faith is not a checklist. But there are two answers to this question that I've given already. And the first answer is to consult God. Before you make any significant financial decision, turn it over to God and ask for His direction. An easy rule is, if it's big enough decision that you should talk to your spouse before deciding, then you should talk to God as well. And the second answer is to be generous toward the poor. Jesus gives this answer to the Pharisees, and he gives it to us as well. There are many ways that we can give to the poor, and there are many causes that this church supports locally and around the world. And If you need help deciding how to to be generous toward the poor, I'm sure your deacons would love to have that conversation with you. And so I'll move on to the third answer, one that's a little bit more difficult. Now, this summer, I had the opportunity to to unite a couple from from our church in marriage. And for their wedding text, they chose 1 Corinthians 13. And this is a fairly common wedding text, but it's also one that's often misunderstood. Couples will think that Paul is talking about the kind of love that they need to have for each other. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And in choosing this as a wedding text, couples will often think, that when they express this kind of love for each other, that they will experience the blessing that we read in the first part of 1 Corinthians 8, that love never fails. Now, my wife's not here this morning. She had to teach Sunday school in our church. But I think that she would agree with me that after 15 years of marriage, that love sometimes does fail. In fact, I don't think anyone who's sitting here who's been married for more than five minutes can say that the description of love I just read is an accurate description of their love for their spouse or of their spouse's love for them. And that's because this was never meant to be. Fortunately, this couple that I, that I married this summer, they knew this. They already had experienced challenging situations in their life and they knew firsthand that love expressed from one person to another, often does fall short. But the reason they chose this as their wedding text is because they knew that this was a vivid description, not of our love for each other, but of God's love for us. And it's an invitation to imperfectly share God's perfect love with others. This couple wanted their friends and their family to know that only the love, the, the only love that would hold them together is God's perfect love for each of them. And it is their desire that others would know of, the love, know of this love through the way that they expressed their love for each other and for the people around them. The kind of love that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13 is called agape love. In Greek, there are about seven different words to describe love. One's romantic love, one's brotherly love, and the list goes on. A parent to a child, there are seven different words that you can find in the Greek language to describe love. And agape love is one that's, that's unique in that it's often translated as not just love, but as charity. Author C.S. Lewis calls it gift love as it is the kind of love that's meant to be given with no expectation of return. When we give love freely, when we love (coughs) without the expectation of our love being returned, and when we show God's perfect love to all people, friend, family, and stranger alike, this is how. We store up our riches in heaven. Let's turn to our Father in heaven, asking that he may help us to show this kind of love. Let us pray. Dear Father God, you have shown us perfect love in how you not only created us and walked alongside us, but also when we fell short of your will that you sent your Son, Jesus to suffer and die, to pay the price for our sin. And Lord, you sent your Holy Spirit to to live in our hearts, to give us this ability to to return your love to you and to share it with others. We know, Lord, that we still experience the effects of sin, and so we, we are not able to love you perfectly or to love others perfectly. But we pray, Lord, that we may grow in charity towards one another, in love toward one another, and to those who are poor and to those who are in need. Lord, use us to be a blessing to those around us. Help us to love in the way that you have loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.